Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Today is the conclusion of a short sermon series that we've been doing that I've been calling Living Sacrifices, Living Into the Christian Story. And we've been doing it during this interval of ordinary time before the beginning of pre-Lent, which begins next Sunday with Septuagesma Sunday. Up until this week, we've been primarily in Romans chapters 12 through 13, which many scholars consider the ethical section of Paul's epistle to the church at Rome in which he brings the dense theological truths of chapters 1 through 11. And if you've ever done a Bible study on the book of Romans, you know these are very dense theological truths. And he brings them to bear on the conduct of Christians. First, we looked at how, the, how that works in the context of the church, in which we have different gifts that should be used for the common good and the upbuilding of the body of Christ. Then we looked at how that same ethic applies to our interactions with those outside of the church, which should be characterized by love. And finally, last week, we saw how Paul's teaching here shapes our engagement with common civic spaces. Today, our epistle reading isn't from Romans, but jumps to Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. And the passage isn't directly related to our readings from Romans, but it does serve as a succinct summary of many of the themes we've been encountering the past few weeks, and therefore operates as a fitting conclusion as we bring this series to a close. What we'll see in this passage is that St. Paul summarizes the shape and contours of the Christian life on the basis of union with Christ, a union that begins when we receive the sacrament of baptism. And that union entails putting on Christ sacramentally through, the, through baptism, but also ethically through the cultivation of virtue, whereby we become conduits of God's peace when we let his word dwell in us. When we put him on, we can join ourselves to his sacrifice, thereby becoming living sacrifices, no matter what it is we find ourselves doing in both word and deed. To better understand our union with Christ in baptism, it's helpful to revisit the Old Testament rite of circumcision. In the Old Testament, circumcision was how one was made a member of Israel. You could not become Jewish without being circumcised. So circumcision acted as an entry rite. It was not an end point, but a beginning in which an Israelite became bound to their community. But this came with a responsibility a responsibility to keep the Old Testament law. This meant that while circumcision was a sort of indelible mark, one could be punished with what we might call now excommunication that resulted from a lack of obedience to God's covenant. The problem with circumcision, of course, is that it's gender exclusive. It's only applicable to males. And it's also kind of a tough sell if you're trying to get people to join your community. Further, circumcision was an ethnocentric rite. It made you a member of a nation. It made you an Israelite. But it didn't really answer some of the fundamental problems that face human beings. Namely, circumcision didn't take away sin, nor did it offer regeneration. In Colossians 2, then, St. Paul presents baptism as a new and perfect circumcision. 
Speaking to Christians, he says, Ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. So baptism is circumcision because it constitutes a removal, but not a removal of flesh, but of our sins. A person who has been baptized has had all of their sins, both actual and original, remitted through the sacrament. Baptism, this circumcision of Christ, is the basis for our union with him, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him. Now, baptism doesn't mean that we won't apostatize or fall away later, but it does mean that we become immersed into the story of Christ and we become recipients of a new life. The central emphasis of Paul's preaching is that because of baptism, there is no need for physical circumcision as a ritual because the goal is not to make Gentiles become Jewish because all people regardless of their class, their race, and their gender, can become in Christ. But like circumcision, baptism is a beginning in that it imparts a grace to us which must grow and must be tended to and cultivated as we become who we are in Christ. And that requires our cooperation. And it's that theme of cooperation that St. Paul emphasizes in our reading this morning. And he lays out three different avenues whereby we can cooperate with God. The first is through acquiring virtue. The second is by becoming a conduit of peace. And the third is by dwelling in his word. The image commonly used for baptism was putting off old and dirty garments that represented our old life, our sin, and putting on new and clean ones. In the ancient world, this is why they often got baptized in the nude, a tradition I'm glad died out. (laughs) But this image of baptismal garments being taken off and on is reused by St. Paul in our reading this morning to describe the acquisition and cultivation of virtues. We put off the old and dirty garments of vices for the clean garments of virtue. Of course, we should remember that the pursuit of virtue is not what some term works salvation, but stems from the fact that, as Paul points out, the church is the elect of God and is holy and beloved. Our pursuit of virtue is a way of realizing that we have put on the new man. We've put on Christ in our baptism. So what virtues does St. Paul have in mind for the Christian to attain? Well, he gives us a list of seven which is a number I'm sure he didn't choose by accident, given that it's the number of completion and the number of creation. So the first virtue is a heart of mercy or compassion. And that word compassion literally means to suffer with or to feel the feelings of another. And that should be manifested by the church in a ministry of presence to those who are suffering and hurting. The second virtue is kindness, That is, treating others with dignity and respect regardless of who they are. The third is humility, being humble by recognizing our self-limitations and not seeing others as beneath us. Fourth is meekness, which is a kind of self-control that harnesses our power for the good of the other. 
The sixth is, the fifth is long-suffering or forbearing, which asks what we can do to help those who are struggling. The penultimate virtue that Paul offers here is forgiveness, which he correlates to the forgiveness that we have received just as Christ forgave us. Now, the seventh and final virtue is the one that stands above all the others, and it binds all of them together and summarizes the whole list. Charity, or love, is the seventh virtue. All virtues are, as Pauline scholar Jerome Murphy O'Connor says, mere facets of love. And what is love? To will the good of the other, even if, or perhaps we should say especially if, it entails sacrifice on our part. Bishop Robert Barron reminds us of the flip side of this reality. If love is the cause and goal of all the virtues, then a lack of charity is the source and cause of all our dysfunctions. Therefore, St. John of the Cross warns us that at the end of our lives, all of us will be examined as to whether, primarily, whether we have loved. And that eschatological judgment should be an impetus for us to love God now, to allow ourselves to be permeated by his love for us, and to let that flow to others by giving up, as St. John of the Cross says, all that is your own. When we begin to see the depths and riches of God's love for us, we can give way to his peace. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. The gospel brings us peace because our Lord has removed the barriers between us and God and between us and others so that we can become his children and partakers of the divine nature. Peace is restoration. It makes things the way they should be. It's a kind of right ordering. And when we experience that peace as the Holy Ghost orders our souls and bodies, we can then become conduits of it. So a few weeks ago, we talked about how St. Paul describes the vocation of the Christian to be an ambassador of Christ in the world. Well, part of being an ambassador is taking that peace that we receive here in the church out into the world, into all of our contexts, whether that be our homes, our workplaces, our friend circles, or wherever else we are, so that we can help other people experience it. We're further strengthened in grace, and we further cooperate by God by letting his word dwell in us. As Christians, we should be people of the book, a people who are immersed in the scriptures. It should dwell in us richly. It should become a part of who we are. And if you think about it, our common life is permeated with scripture, which should be used, as St. Paul says in our reading this morning, for teaching and admonishing. That is, it should inform what it is that we believe and how we behave. Even more, it should inform our worship, which he says should be characterized by psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We do this both in the substance of the service, you can think of the various scripture readings at the Mass and at morning prayer, but also in the material of the Mass itself. So much of the Book of Common Prayer is drawn directly or indirectly from the scriptures themselves, and other features of the service, like the minor propers, are often taken directly from the Bible too. And this comes from the conviction that Scripture is the normal means that God uses to communicate to his church. And so we must be a people who, through the liturgy and through the reading and study of Scripture, become a people who listen.
So these three avenues for cooperation with God through peace and virtue and the word culminate in an ethic that we might call self-sacrifice. St. Paul ends our reading this morning saying, and whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. All of who we are, every part of our being should be transformed by God and be united to the sacrifice of his son. And I think that verse from the reading this morning correlates very well with one of my favorite parts of the canon of the mass where we say, and here we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls and bodies to be a reasonable, holy and living sacrifice unto thee. Because as Christians, we see that everything that we do, or at least we should see that everything that we do, is an offering for our Lord. The Christian story is a beautiful one. It's a story that God loves us so much that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Those of us who have been baptized have been immersed into that story so that we become not passive spectators or consumers, but active participants with various roles to play in that story that unfolds before our very eyes throughout history. Each of us have varied gifts, as we established weeks ago, but all those gifts are aimed at a common objective, which is that each of us become little Christ's. And we do that by cultivating virtues that strengthen our love. We do that by becoming conduits of God's peace in the world. And we do that by dwelling in his word so that his word might dwell in us. These three avenues are a means to a greater end. To place ourselves at the altar as living sacrifices so that all of our actions may be transfigured for the glory of God. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.